0: I've had one bad job since I've been here. My dad worked for old Joe Distilling Company. The last 10 years of his life, he worked here. Mm-hmm. You know what the problem was?
1: You were working here too?
0: Yes. <laughs> I was his boss.
1: Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Kenny here, and this is episode 207 of Bourbon Pursuit. It's been a pretty busy week and a half of bourbon news, so let's get to it. Another warehouse comes crashing down. However, this time it's not because of unknown reasons, but it was because of disastrous weather and wind. O.Z. Tyler, located in Owensboro, Kentucky, had a corner of Warehouse H get ripped off and barrels started coming to the ground back on Monday, June 17th. About 4,500 barrels of bourbon were in that quadrant that have now been rescued. The warehouse has been successfully deconstructed and the cleanup process is underway. That particular warehouse holds around 19,400 barrels. OZ Tyler has been in daily meetings with the Environmental Protection Agency to make sure that everything stays contained. On the bright side, there has been minimal damage and very little leakage because bourbon barrels are constructed to withstand plenty of movement. JW Dant. You've heard the name before because it's one of the many brands owned by Heaven Hill and is also one of the prominent bottled and bond bourbons that you see on the shelf. And it's been talked about previously with Bernie lovers back on episodes 36, 37, and 89. Well, Heaven Hill may own the name JW Dant as the brand, but they don't own the person JW Wally Dant, surprised the crowd during the National Bourbon Day celebration in Bardstown, Kentucky, announcing a $12 million investment to build Log Still Distillery on 2,200 acres of land that he purchased that was once Gethsemane Distillery, until that was actually shut down back in 1961. In 1883, that distillery at this site was called Head and Beam Distillery, but was closed during Prohibition. The distillery reopened the repeal of Prohibition, eventually selling to United Distillers and later Shenley. Production at the old distillery was relocated to Louisville in the early 1960s and production at this location had ceased. The JW Dant brand name was sold to Heaven Hill in the early 1990s. Heaven Hill still produces JW Dant bourbon today, so don't expect this name on a future bottle from Log Still Distillery. You can read more about the history of JW Dant and Logstill Distillery at distillerytrail.com with the link in our show notes. While speaking of Heaven Hill, everyone is up in arms either celebrating or chastising them over the newest announcement of the relaunch of their Heaven and Hill Bottle and Bond. You may remember this last year when this product was only available in Kentucky and it disappeared from shelves when it had announced its retirement. However, it's back, but there are some catches. The age statement has been increased one year from six to seven years old. It's still bottled and bonded 100 proof. The packaging is a bit more flashy than its white label screw top predecessor. Now, the big news might be that it's not launching in Kentucky. It's not gonna be available in Kentucky on the first release. Instead, it will be immediately available in California, Texas, New York, Georgia, Florida, Illinois, South Carolina, and, Colorado. And the price has jumped from the once low-budget daily bourbon of $12.99 to nearly three times that with a suggested retail price of $39.99. We're going to be discussing this one in a lot more detail on the next roundtable so we can see where this new price point positions them in the market, so stay tuned for that one. Today's guest, he needs no introduction. He's easily one of probably the most iconic living figures in bourbon today. He's been on episodes 77, 105, and 175. He's even got his own personalized scooter to get him around the distillery, and that's Jimmy Russell. This podcast touches on his early years and how he was selected to become the next master distiller and how he saw the changes of his own distillery change hands plenty of times throughout the years. It was certainly an honor for myself to sit there and chat with this man one more time to really just hear more about his story. You're listening to this podcast, so we know you enjoy a little bit. So if you can, please be our boots in the ground. Leave us a review because that helps the show grow and find new people. Now, we've got Fred Minnick with Above The Char.
2: I'm Fred Minnick and this is Above The Char. I was changing my nine-month-old baby's diaper when suddenly an enormous back pain struck my lower back. A spasm seized my spine. It's as if a thousand vodka troops grabbed their pitchforks and started stabbing me. Thank goodness I was able to place Julian gently down in the changing station as I toppled over in intense pain. I simply couldn't move. And all I could think about was the total wine event I had in Atlanta later that day. I had considered canceling it, but decided to push on. I drove to Atlanta from Louisville, stopping every hour to stretch my back. At one point, I thought I was going to pass out in the middle of a Dollar General in Chattanooga as I was shopped for back support things. And if I did pass out there, I don't think I would have woken up with much. It was a very interesting crowd shopping that day. I pressed on. I get to the Total Wine two hours late, and there was a decent crowd waiting for me. I tried standing and talking, but could barely stand. So I sat and talked about taxation and bourbon. I never really know what I'm going to talk about with these things. I like to fill the crowd out. And this was one I felt was really hungry for geeky knowledge and somehow bourbon taxes just kind of rose to the forefront of what to talk about. I went through my spiel, signed some books and magazines, but couldn't have a tasting. For some reason, Georgia doesn't allow people to have tastings in liquor stores. When will our country figure out that responsible alcohol actions are the answer Not pesky bans on things like tastings. I feel really bad for those Total Wine workers because they can't really share the goodness of bourbon. Anyway, the next day, I went to Atlanta's other Total Wine, where I ran into the show's good friend Carrie, a.k.a. Suburbia, who taunted me with a vodka bottle and took a picture. Oh, the pleasure he had. You should check it out on his Twitter handle, look for Suburbia. It really captured my disdain for the bourbon job-stealing parasite known as vodka. Seriously, vodka sucks. Okay, I told my therapist I would cut back on my vodka rant, so let me get back to the total wine stuff. I did a similar talk about taxes at the Kennesaw store and later hung out with the club Atlanta Bourbon Barons, where the founder, Giuliano, opened up his house, an insane collection to me. At this point, after hitting up the urgent care center the day before, I was on some medication for the back and couldn't really partake in much of this great whiskey tasting, but I sipped a little, just a little. One of the members is Atlanta's leading personal trainer and kinesiologist who sees Atlanta Braves players and people who have a bunch more muscle than me. He offered to look at my back and that to me is the epitome of the bourbon community. We like to help one another. Atlanta was gracious with the bourbon hospitality and concerns for my health and it just made my trip all the worthwhile. So thank you so much to the Atlanta bourbon community for opening up your arms and accepting me and my bad back as I hobbled to and from all the Total Wine stores and to your homes. I share this with you because I feel like the bourbon community is at a breaking point on the internet. I'm seeing constant trolling and bickering in online forums, and maybe it's time we go back to the old ways of the bourbon social life. You know, when you invited total strangers into your home and poured over your conversations with your very best bourbons. Those were the good old days, and I'd like to see us get back to them. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, have you subscribed to my new magazine, Bourbon Plus? You should. The latest cover features the actor Jeffrey Wright, who's starring in James Bond and John Wick. He's on the cover. Check it out. Until next week, cheers.
1: It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at WhiskeyAmbitions.com. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Back in Lawrenceburg, filming, recording on site at Wild Turkey Distillery. Uh, Wild Turkey Hill, I believe, one time is what you called it, right, Jimmy?
0: It's known as the Wild Turkey Hill. It's been named after our county. It's known as the Wild Turkey Hill.
1: There you go. So we have uh master distiller of course bourbon Lunged, jimmy russell on the podcast today and before i kind of dig into it just want to say thanks to everybody from campari that helped set this up everybody that uh also kind of figured out the logistics for it as well we are recording outside today so if you hear some trucks going by and uh, something that jimmy had already mentioned earlier to us that there is a rock quarry probably about a mile and a half down the road and uh, Apparently they make some pretty damn good limestone and that's where you hear these trucks that are just going back and forth all day.
0: Right, you know, this is where all the limestone you have to have good limestone water to make good bourbon and the Kentucky River is all spring-fed limestone water.
1: So I guess we'll go ahead and we'll kick it off with that so anybody everybody already knows Jimmy. So we'll get, we'll get past that, but you know, we'll we'll talk about water in general, right? Because I think it's one of those things that uh, gets a lot of talk about when it comes to Kentucky bourbon. You know, you talk about limestone, you talk about limestone filtration. But does it really matter at the end of the day? Because a lot of stuff goes through like reverse osmosis, and it's really filtered heavily through there. So, what's kind of your thought process? Well,
0: now in the cooking process, we use just the limestone water. It's not going through. On time, we use osmosis or anything. Is when we're cutting the bourbon after it's been aged for years. But it's just regular. Kentucky River water when...
1: When you're actually cooking it.
0: You're cooking it. Uh, oh,
1: okay. Mm. So I guess let's let's give some people a little bit of a, uh, a schooling. So when you're cooking bourbon, what's what's the usual time process uh, when it goes into the masher and everything like
0: well, that? Well, it depends on time of year. Uh, we're cooking 400 bushels to a mash corn, rind, barley, malt. Now, the cooking times are the same. We cook corn up to 212 degrees, and then we cook it for a period of time. Then we start cooling down... We add a ride a certain temperature, it adds a little more starch, a little more flavors. And then we cool on down to certain temperatures. It adds, we add the barley malt. Barley malt converts all starches into fermentable sugars. Then we pump it to our fermenter, add our yeast, and the yeast eating on the fermentable sugars produces the bourbon in 72 hours. And this depends on temperature. The cooking temperature is always the same. But cooling down from 212, we're cooling water out of the Kentucky River is through coils and all. In the wintertime, we can cook and pump a fermented mash, uh, a mash out in a fermenter in three and a half, four hours. And when we just shut out in the last part of June, the water was hot. It was taking four and a half, five hours. So what you're doing, you're sitting there and beating that grain to death, cooking it. And co- I use simple terms, mm-hmm. just like cooking at home. You leave something on the stove too long, it gets mushy and not as good. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, but do you get any, like— uh- like say you're, you're putting it in like in a baking pan, do, do, does it ever actually get like black underneath of it? Like if you actually cooked it too
0: long? No, no. Uh,
1: no. So you're not going to actually get, you can't actually burn it.
0: No, you're not going to burn it.
1: So is there is there a point when you know that the mash is done, in your opinion?
0: Like, oh, yes. You can tell by looking at a fermenter. It, the first day, is pretty smooth and even on top. And the yeast on the uh, sugars and the fermenter is rolling and moving, and it's a natural movement with the yeast eating on the sugars. Mm-hmm. You can see it, and then as it starts finishing off, we call it dying down. It'll start dying down, and it'll be come out clear on top.
1: Oh yeah, and that's yeah. The, oh, the the fermenters, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: We call it beer at that stage.
1: Mm-hmm. That's distiller's beer, absolutely. Right. So let's 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 give everybody a little bit of a history lesson too, because uh, you started here at Wild Turkey back in.
0: September tenth, nineteen fifty
1: four. Okay. So you know the exact date. Do you remember the time? Uh no. <laughs> Six A. M. something seven, like that?
0: Seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe I'm not the first person to ask that one. I don't know. Yeah. So you've you've pretty much taken are you've you've done a, pretty much every single role with inside of the yes, stiller as well.
0: Yes. Uh I, most of the times you start in the bourbon business, you start in one place, you stay. The old master stiller took me under his wing and I started out in the lab. And the distillery time i learned that you know he learned a job well he can sit back and take it easy then they moved me to something else movies so i had experience in running a bottling operation running a whole plant and actually i was plant manager for several years
1: mm-hmm. so what what made it and by the way who was your master distiller that mr
0: bill hughes he was so, a young distiller for prohibition and uh, he lived right up here at the top of the hill mm-hmm. and uh, he took me under his wing and started training me. I was born and raised here in Lawrenceburg, Anderson County, and he had known me, you know, all my life, and he more or less took me under his wing and started training me. What What
1: was it about you that— did he see something? Was there a glimmer in your eye? Did you did you ask? Like what no, was it?
0: No, I didn't really know. He just they just started training me doing everything here.
1: he's like, here's the here's the biggest sucker in the room. <laughs>
0: Probably. <laughs> Nobody else would have it.
1: <laughs> no, I'm teasing.
0: <laughs> so what were those
1: what were those beginning years like when you're when you're trying to have this apprenticeship?
0: Well, he's learning everything in distillery. Uh, I worked in quality control and distillery. That day and time, we didn't have all this fang-dangle equipment you have now. We'd run analysis on the corn, check it, make sure it meets our standards, everything we'd done uh, by hand. Now you have uh, good equipment to check all that now. But say you check all the grain, and then maybe before the day was over with you. you, might be up there a scoop shovel, shoving it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> done a little bit of everything. So
1: so you started in 1954, right? Yes. And so at what point was that during— um, pre-post, uh, sorry, post-Prohibition, and and was there anything that really, that was, I guess, Prohibition-esque that that affected your your job at the time, or was everything just running full cylinders? We
0: started, Prohibition ended in 1933. Mm-hmm. And this stillery, some of the buildings, our storage buildings, some of our storage buildings here uh, was built for in the 1890s. And uh, so most of the is was dismantled because it went from 1919 to 1933. A lot of them didn't think they'd be back in operation. But the family that owned this at that time, it's a big rock quarry where they mined the limestone out right here below us. And they owned that rock quarry too. So they'd work here in the wintertime, work in the rock quarry in the summertime.
1: Mm-hmm. So, there, yeah, you weren't running full cylinders like no. you are today.
0: Well, not. It still the same way. And through the hot months, July, August, middle we don't make any bourbon. It's just too hot to doing the now bottling and warehouse and everything continues goes on all the time. Mm-hmm. Before it's the cooking mash it just takes too long to cook them and cool them down.
1: Now, do you think that has any effect on the supply of of what you all can try to produce? Or I mean, do you look at it as maybe we should throw in some air conditioning units, open some open some windows, and keep? Well, cooking. that's not the
0: problem. It's the water. Oh, is it? Well, see, we we start having chilled water to cool it down. It just takes a long, but uh, oh, we've doubled the capacity on the, our distillery the in the last few years, so we're running about three-fourths of capacity right now. So when we built everything, re, refurbished everything, we doubled or more than doubled our capacity. And the way we've got it now, we can put in extra fermenters. We can still put in more fermenters and increase more and more.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, do you do you see the day coming when you're going to when you're going to need to do that, or is right now everything pretty good and status well, quo? Well,
0: you know, I hope we have to because save when I started, fifty or sixty barrels a day. Now, because we're we're strictly our own product, everything's wild turkey products here. We make our own product, age our own product, and bottle our own product.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, almost right. You've got a few other things out there, old Rippy Bon and Lily. Well, that
0: that was too old to steal. That was a one time deal. They went back. And done some, Campari done that. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's some old distilleries was here in town. They've been looking at some of the old distilleries before Prohibition, maybe doing a special every once in a while on them.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, there's another one that could be coming out. I think it was um, the, oh, what was it? The, the Barons. The barons releases or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, it looked like it was kind of another another yeah. Campari thing, but we figured you probably didn't have a, a whole lot of your hands involved in that one. Either. No, I didn't. So another thing, I guess, let's give uh, an idea of of what. So at at some point, you were also. Do you remember when you had to start going on the road to start talking about the bourbon?
0: Yes, uh, it was probably at least thirty years ago or more. Uh, in production, the master distillers are working in production. They just, uh, it's the plant. That's all you've done. And our company started me out uh, going on the road, and I made a trip all across the United States. And it was, it was completely different. To this. Now, everybody, it's all whiskey. Don't make any difference what it is. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, Everybody. With all the internets and everything, everybody knows everything's going— just like this broadcast, broadcast. you all covering everything. People know what's going on all the time now.
1: Well, there's a hungry consumer out there, right? They They, yes. they want to know more.
0: They want to—that's what I say. When I started, it was, it was all whiskey. It didn't make any difference what it was. Mm-hmm. But now they're very well-educated. They know what's going on all the time.
1: So what, was, what were some of the biggest challenges when you were doing that in regards of trying to get people to either listen to you or try the product?
0: Well— they listened. Uh, when he started talking to them, they really listened. And that's when these uh, bourbon societies come along, Whiskies of the world, and it's all over the world now, anywhere you go in the world. You know, for many years, bourbon was j- strictly a Southern gentleman's drink. They got their cards or cigars, and bourbon went to the back room and played cards. That's where it comes in. I don't know if you ever heard the old story, you never drank bourbon until after 5 o'clock. Well, somewhere it's always 5 o'clock.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> but that was old story and then it's come a worldwide drink now the export market is huge uh, everywhere in the world now and bourbon is really doing well were you because
1: you were uh, I guess you consider yourself a pioneer when it comes to going out traveling and, and talking about the whiskey were you nervous
0: no not really no I'm just plain old Jimmy i I'm saying well i mean at this point yeah you you've
1: stood up and you've talked in front of a bunch of people for uh, quite a long time and i know one of the things that was always relatively funny was eddie would always say you know you didn't do a whole lot of talking at home but you should see you <laughs> at the distillery. you're doing you're doing your thing then you're always
0: talking well that's what he said the first trip he made with me and he come back home and said mama you don't know Daddy he said he don't say nothing around here he said you can't keep him quiet when he's out on the road
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you think you think you found like um like a, a new a new happiness when you were when you were traveling of, of trying to find a way to connect with consumers?
0: well that but I've always been people I enjoy people I'm about call myself a people's person I like to be just like here I tried to get down the visitor center at least once today talk to the visitor, see what they have to say about it. And my wife likes to come here, too. And on Saturdays, my family has breakfast together. We're family.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, every, everything's open to y'all except our home. That's all us. <laughs> but uh, we have breakfast together every Saturday morning. And we, she'll come out with me. Actually, she worked here before I did. Mm-hmm. She worked here for eight years So our children come along. And she stayed home, took care of the children. And... Uh, and we have breakfast. She likes to come out here and see the visitors, and they like to see her. And, so we can, and then after church on Sunday, we normally come out a little while on Sunday afternoons. I get to spend more time in the visitor center that way. Where through the week, I got a job to do up there, and I don't get down here as much.
1: So, you know, I think I remember this correctly. When you said your your wife, Joretta, by the way. yes. Now was this place called was it Old Tub or Old Joe? Is that no, what it was?
0: No, no, it was Anderson County Distilling
1: Company. Anderson County, okay.
0: Uh-huh. And then one time it was Rippy Brothers, and then it was JTS Brown at one time. Mm-hmm. And then been since 1971, it's been Austin Nichols.
1: Gotcha. All right, well see. I'm obviously, I'm learning something today as well.
0: Yeah, Austin Nichols Company, they had their bourbon made here and it was shipped to New York and bottled in New York at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they bought everything out here, uh, bought the, the whiskey that they owned already here. I mean, it was already theirs, so and they didn't buy any of the other products at JTS Brown, or any of them, they didn't buy any of that.
1: All right. So, at what point? So, you were here during the entire Austin Nichols. Uh, Since
0: they've actually owned the bottom, everything here in Kentucky.
1: Absolutely. So, what was it like during that time to? Sit there and distill, and then just ship everything away. Like what was what was the?
0: Well, we were still bottling everything here.
1: Okay, you're still doing that too.
0: Yeah, we was doing everything here. Mm-hmm.
1: So talk about it a little bit because that was in the '70s, right? So it wasn't it wasn't the heyday for bourbon. No,
0: bourbon was strict say back in that day and time, bourbon was strictly a southern gentleman's drink.
1: So what was what was the? I guess you could say the the aura or the the feeling. You know, kind of went through a lot of the veins of people around here of of what's going to happen with bourbon during that time. I mean, well, they- you
0: know, before prohibition, it was twelve distilleries here in Lawrenceburg, Anderson County. We was known as one of the biggest distilling cup bases it was at that time. Most of them, when I started was still four here. Four Roses was known as National distillery in town. Old Joe Distilling Company was here, and uh, Hoffman Distillery was here, mm-hmm. and then we were here. So. When I started, they were still four, and now we're down to two, four roses, and us.
1: Right, and so what? What was what was the old Joe and uh, Hoffman? What what kind of fate were they delivered?
0: Well, old Joe was one of the oldest brands. It started in eighteen eighteen. It's one of the oldest uh, oldest brands, and they had uh, several different brands, and then uh, Hoffman, they had the Ho- Hoffman brother, and then they started Asbury Brook.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's where it started,
1: which, from my understand, is. Ezra Brooks wasn't even a real person, right?
0: I thought he was. I'm not sure. Yeah, see, I I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I think that's been one of those biggest the, the,
1: the yeah. lores of bourbon. Nobody actually knows who Ezra right. Brooks actually right. is. I think little, it's just a fictional
0: character. It could be. But I know they
1: should. <laughs> put it this way. If Jimmy Russell doesn't know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and put my stake in the ground. It might be fictional. Uh-huh. I might be right on that one.
0: You here. might be right on that one. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So I kind of want to go back a little bit about um you know your time on the road and what it was to to start doing that cuz you said you weren't nervous but what was what was the reception of a lot of those people you know you had said that they were they were listening but do you think that that sort of helped kick mark or sorry kickstart the the market at the time for what we're seeing today
0: oh yes. they they've started wanting to learn about it and know back to Ezra Brooks one of the fellows that owned the story, his his first name was Ezra. Now, well, that had anything to do with it, I don't know.
1: Well, I don't know either.
0: I don't know either. But a fellow that owned the old Hoffman Distillery, one of the owners, his first name was Ezra. Uh,
1: we'll have to look into that. Uh huh. We'll put that on the research papers for later. <laughs> but again, I, I kind of go back to your traveling. Uh, you know, the reception of of those individuals and how how that kind of kickstarted. So, how long and how many years were you traveling? And well, I know you're still doing it a little bit, not near as much.
0: Uh, well, I'm still doing it in the states. I'm not going overseas. Eddie's doing most of the traveling overseas now, but but I've been in just about every country in the world with talking about bourbon. And, and say, it's come a worldwide drink. People's really educated anywhere you go in the world now. And they say you have the bourbon societies in Japan, Australia, Europe, everywhere. Women of the bourbon, women of the whiskey of the world, and everything nowadays.
1: Absolutely. So, do you, I guess I'm trying to find a, a, a good word to, to kind of summarize this with but when you're did did you did you look at that time traveling as as a, as a good time to be able to do that or would you had rather have been back here at the distillery kind of overseeing a lot of
0: people. no I enjoy doing that uh, I, I would want to be at distillery I wouldn't want to do it all the time like a lot of the ambassadors is now they're on the road all the time mm-hmm. but every so often be out on the road and see what the people has to say you know you make it age it and bottle it and ship it out unless you had complaints, and we've had very few of them over the years, you never heard any more about it. This way, when you're out in the field, you get to meet people that's enjoying it and drinking it and hear what they have to say about it.
1: So when we we talk about just the whiskey in general, what do, you, what do you look at as some of the more brands that, that you've fallen in love with? You know, we've talked to Eddie, and, and he, you know, you talk about everybody's got their baby. Right. Right? Everybody's got their baby. And so he looks as Kentucky Spirit and Rare Breed were really your babies.
0: Yes. Uh, Kentucky Spirit and Blanton's was the first two single barrels on the market way back in the early 90s. The first two barrel fruits on the market— was bookers and rare breed and that was the late 80s early 90s now everybody has them but they were the first two on the market
1: so kind of talk about what the kentucky spirit line really is and what it kind of means to you as well Well, the
0: kentucky spirit is a single barrel mm-hmm. uh you're hand selected and selected one when you say single barrel it has come from one barrel and one barrel only so you're selected now here a way we do it Every barrel has a little different taste, even though it's the same going in it. way a white oak tree grows in the woods has an effect on a tree. I use simple terms. You plant flowers around your home all the way around. Some will do better on one side than on the other because they get more sun, more rain. or Same way with white oak trees. So when we're selecting, we're selecting consistent taste. Now we have this barrel program where bars, restaurants, uh, distributors can come in and select their own barrel. We'll have some more spicy, depends on the wood, mm-hmm. some less, because they know their customer. We're trying to please everybody where they know their customers, and they're picking one. One of them might want it more spicy. One might not want is spicy, so when we're selecting single barrels.
1: So, the—I mean, how often were you actually going through and, and testing some of these Kentucky Spirit barrels to see if they matched a profile that people would want to come in and actually purchase them?
0: We— We've always done that. Uh, we check everything. We're heavy on control. Our grain is checked before it's ever unloaded. We check it after we ground it. We check it when it's been cooked. We check the fermenters. We test a new product before it ever goes in the barrel. And then we check new barrels to make sure they meet our standard. We use the number four heavy char. Mm-hmm. We make sure everything meets our standards before.
1: So you, it's like you—it's like you almost have like a battle of wills here, right? Because you've got this—you got this heavy lean on consistency, where you're saying like, yes, we've got one mash bill, we go in one entry proof, we do this, we do this to have this lean, level of consistency. And it's like, but we're going to come out with a product where every single thing is different.
0: Uh, you know, me—I uh, like to be consistent, even though I've come up with American honey, I've come up with several different experiments over the years. But uh, you know, I use simple terms. Yeah, and I eat certain foods, and if I don't like the taste of them, I'm not going to eat them again.
1: <laughs> like what? Uh, like what? What foods are you not going to try again?
0: Well, uh,
1: you're, yeah, because some people, some people say like uh, I'm too old to eat this anymore. Like, I'm going to enjoy the rest of what I'm going to eat.
0: Uh, well, my wife sure here. She says I eat too much steak and beef. And all.
1: <laughs> you can't have enough steak. That's and fine. And barbecue. Yeah, there you go. What about stuff that you you're not going to touch? Anything that you're not going to touch anymore?
0: Uh, no, really. More, uh, it's not very few things that I don't like. All
1: mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the warehouses here. So it seems like you probably know every every nook and cranny of a lot of these things, right? right. So do you have do you have a favorite warehouse?
0: You know, to me, uh, most of them. If you see, if you sit here, you see them. They all sit at about the same level. Get same airflow. Get same airflow and everything. It uh, where some places are, you know, they're down in valleys and different places. But here we're getting, now Eddie likes A and B warehouse. He says it ages. But, you know, you get something in your mind, and you believe it. But uh, me, uh, I don't see a lot of difference in any of our houses.
1: Mm-hmm. What about the floors? Do you have a particular floor that you're uh, akin to?
0: Well, the third floor and the fifth floor is ideal aging. The first and second floors are these seven story warehouses. Uh, it can be 30 degrees difference between the top floors and the bottom floors. It ages too fast on the top floors and don't age fast enough on the bottom floors. So at times you have to rotate the bottom. The middle floors is ideal. The humidity and temperature and all that is not that b- identical. big change in it. So, But the bottom floors and top floors, it is. If you was over an hour going through the warehouse, you start up them steps every floor you feel the difference in the heat going up. Mm-hmm.
1: So why do you think uh, they stop? Why'd you stop at seven? Like, so why, why wouldn't you go like a 50 Ooh. story warehouse? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's point of sale Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning twenty-four-seven help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a one-dollar-per-month trial period at shopify.com/bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com/bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com/bourbon. so why do you think uh they stop why'd you stop at seven Like, why why wouldn't you go like a 50-story warehouse like what what would be the what would be the 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 ideal way of not doing something like that well
0: i don't know how that would look but
1: uh, (laughs) it'd be be monstrous
0: it'd be monstrous but back in that day and time they didn't have all this equipment you have now they they uh, had pulleys and uh, horses that pulled the barrels up to the top floors oh really yes
1: yeah, because I guess, I mean, I've seen, you've seen, you can go in some of these these warehouses and you do see the, uh, you can see, like, the pulleys and you do see, like, essentially, like, the almost like an elevator shaft you yeah. put it on. yeah uh, take
0: it up, pull it up and pull pulleys in the horse. That's what they told me, they used to for prohibition here.
1: Uh, they didn't, like, put a put a backpack on you with a rope no. and, make, <laughs> and make you go well, pull them uh, up on yeah
0: wait a minute, another thing. And now you have rigging machines and all to put them up in the three-tour... Three uh, terrier rigs. Mm-hmm. Back in that day, we called it drop ropes. You had a cable with hooks on the end, and you looped it up over the floor above you. And one <laughs> fellow would hook the barrel with the hooks, and another fellow would be back there pulling them up.
1: Oh, really? Put them
0: in the rig. Now you have all kinds of equipment to handle that now. Yeah. Same way taking them out. You had to take them out the same way.
1: So, what other? I mean, let's let's go ahead and rewind the the clocks of time here, right? So, during your time, what other type of Innovations have you seen when it comes to just yeah either that's rolling barrels or ricking barrels or dumping or anything like that that's sort of either made it easier or just
0: it's made it easier. You got better equipment now. Uh, everything's better equipment now. You, you know in the dump room you used to knock the bung out of every barrel. It's still a, now we got a, you got a bung puller pulls the barrels out sucks it out there now same way in the filling barrels you filled every barrel mm-hmm. and then you had to drive the bung in it roll it out and it's a lot of those things is better equipment now that's we i say our formula everything we haven't changed anything but you just have so much better equipment now than you did and everything to steel you run it by hand you had one hand on a steam valve one hand on a flow valve mm-hmm. and that's where you control you got to be consistent in proofs on your steel if your proof runs up and down on the steel the flavors are going to be up and down so you have to be consistent to get good if you want consistent taste and flavor, you got to run the same proof all day long.
1: So, I guess now it's a lot easier because it's all probably computer
0: controlled. Well, now we have computers, but we still have to have the operators on them. Mm-hmm. They, instead of doing it by hand, they can sit there and—
1: <laughs> click, a, click a mouse. a uh-huh. And they can make it like that. And
0: then they have, when we're grinding grain, they have to be there at the meals. When we're cooking, a cooker fellow has to be around the cooker. When we're filling a fermenter, he has to be there. mm mm-hmm. So we're still, we've got computers sitting, sitting there and doing this by hand. And that still, the middle of that still is about 240 degrees. Mm-hmm. And it was hot back in that day and time sitting there.
1: I <laughs> can imagine.
0: Uh-huh. Now you got air conditioning control rooms for them to all sit in.
1: Oh, yeah. Now they're just, they're living the life of kings, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So you, you got to see the the hard days. The
0: hard days. Everything's done by hand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so
1: let's let's talk a little bit more about the the distillation uh, pieces of it. So you you've got one mash bill that you do for all the bourbons, but you also have a rye.
0: I have a rye mash bill. Right. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit
1: about the rye. Uh, when was that introduced? Like, ha- because I know for a while, you know, you, you used to have. Uh, wild turkey from Maryland source right? Well, when
0: I started, it was like bourbon. Even to this day, you have a lot of people tell bourbon can be made a distinctive product of the United States of America. And a lot of people think that's being made in Kentucky. It's not bourbon. When I started, if rye wasn't made in Maryland or Pennsylvania, it wasn't rye whiskey. Rye was the dominant grain on the East Coast when they come here, and that's what they first mm-hmm. started to use. Probably George Washington was one of the first distillers I get this question all the time. Who was the first distiller? Some of them says they weren't. You know what I say? The first old farmer got over the mountains and got his steel set up. He yeah, was yeah, the first yeah. Probably the first one. <laughs> but a lot of them claims they were the first and this and that and another. So I don't know whether anybody really knows who the, the re- registered distillery was.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's going to be a, a mystery that we're never going to solve. Right. Mm-hmm. So back to the, the rye, you know, so when was, that, when was that introduced here? Because I, we had mentioned that it, we, was, it was sourced at one point for wild turkey.
0: Well, it was made in Pennsylvania. Maryland made for us in Pennsylvania. Okay. Maryland. But uh, we, ever since I've been here, we've bottled rye. hmm Then we started making our own rye, uh, probably late 60s, early 70s. Uh, most rye says 95% or 100% rye. Ours is old-fashioned formula. It's got rye, corn, corn, and barley in it. hmm And that's the way... If you look back, the original recipes for rye in Pennsylvania, Maryland, that's what they were.
1: Right. So I mean, that's so you're you're keeping the same mash bill that you you sort of were even
0: right. Do you, do you can consider that
1: contract distilling if you were taking it out of out of Maryland and bring it back here? Is that well, technically no, what it
0: was? No, they was making it for us. Yeah,
1: wasn't that considered contract distilling? Or yeah, they it? was
0: kind uh, yeah the same way. A lot of the stillers in Kentucky right now. Does a lot of, so it's many distilled brands that does not have a distillery, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of and that's what's made the bourbon market short right now. A lot of them, were, bourbon's made such a huge jump in the last seven or eight years. Same with rye. A lot of them were selling bourbon to other people, and they it and labeled it under other brands, and now they're short of bourbon. So what's your what's your what's your take on that?
1: Do you think? Um are you, are you a fan of NDPs, or non-distilling producers? Do you think...
0: Well, you know, they're making it for people how they want it made, it, I guess, or never how they want it done. But no, my theory is, as long as it says bourbon or rye, all of us are going to come out ahead on it.
1: Right. Well, it, Rising tide raises all ships, right? right? That's, that's the way to look at it. So... So, yeah, so you, you've been doing that for a while. Um, Rare Breed is the the barrel-proof baby of yours. So kind of talk about the inception of that.
0: Well, actually, we were tasting, we sampled. I say we sample everything. We're sampling as an agent each year sitting here. And uh, a lot of visitors come in, we'd be sampling. We would sample right in the warehouse at that time. Knock the bung out and had, had a thief. Pull it out of the barrel and sample it right there. A lot of visitors come in, kept saying. Well, why can't we get some of that? Why can't we get some of that? Mm-hmm. And that's what brought to to me. That's what brought the idea for us here. That if they want it,
1: then we could probably make it happen. Right. Right. It's mm-hmm. easy enough to just not. You can just basically just dump it right away. You don't need to proof it down too much, right? Oh, you
0: can't proof it down.
1: Oh yeah, not going to proof it down
0: at all. Uh, you actually, the only thing you can do is put a little water behind it to clean out your filters. Because mm-hmm. you got a filter to get so that some that char, heavy char. And the dump troughs, you'll see big flakes of char in there. It comes loose in that barrel. Then you have a lot of little fine char that you have to filter to get that fine char out of it. A lot of people like that fine char. Yeah. At
1: least some of the whiskey geeks. What about you? Do you when you when you have the opportunity to just go and sample something or? go ahead and just fill up your own bottle, whatever it is. Do you, do you get a little bit of that just barrel char sitting around in there? Do you
0: like that? Uh, really, you don't get, with the thieves pulling it out, you don't get that in there. Mm-hmm. It's when you jump the barrel and get everything out of it.
1: Right. But are you a fan of it? Because people, it don't, people it, like, people. I mean, I, I don't know. I look at it and you're like, oh, it's kind of like an extra little Little thing about having the bottles—you can you, can, you can swirl it around. You can see the, the right. char kind well, of. Well, a
0: lot there. of people think so. there's something wrong with it when they see that. It's <laughs> what it is.
1: Yeah, I could see a, probably a, a general consumer market uh, would probably look at it like that. The same reason why everybody went to chill filtration at uh, one point because you put ice in it and all of a sudden it looks cloudy. Right. But now we're starting to see this shift or this turn where people are—they're asking for you know non-chill filters. Filter. They're asking for. Throw a little piece of char in there for good measure, so I know yeah. I know I know it's authentic or something.
0: You know, uh, actually, we never used to chill. For it, it, it depends on the proof. It depends on how much water you're adding when you cut it down. Whether it'll uh, it needs chill filtering not. So at one hundred one proof, up in just a few years ago, we never chill filtered it at all. It now what'll happen to it if it's say here shipping it from here and maybe 40 degrees, goes to Canada, 20 below, mm-hmm. it get cloudy and hazy. Uh, and that's what you're doing, you're taking out some of those things, that it won't get that away when you chill filter.
1: Now there's, there's always the, the never-ending debate or story, if you do chill filter it, are you removing any flavor?
0: Well, unless you, I see by federal law, uh, if you move so much flavor, you can't call it bourbon anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So no, you're moving, doing very little flavors on it.
1: So you don't think it's really affecting anything? You think it's more of an aesthetic appearance? Aesthetic, no. Yeah.
0: As say now, uh, the lower proofs, if you're adding a lot of water, see, we're not allowed, uh, the rule of thumb, it takes about a gallon of water to use 100 gallons of bourbon, one proof point. So our barrel proof right now is 116.8. And we're bottling it 101. You're adding very little water to it. Now, if it's coming out of that barrel of 140 something, you're cutting it to 80 proof. You're adding a lot of water to it. Absolutely. Because we just distill, distill it low proof, and put it in a barrel at low proof. So mm-hmm. to say, the higher you distill, we're allowed to distill up to 160 proof. Mm-hmm. And I use simple terms. You like to eat steak?
1: Do you want it well done, or do you want it medium rare? Or? Right. Yeah. You like it well done? I'm not a well-done fan. No, I'm, wow. I'm a medium, medium rare. Well, it's just you don't get a lot of the those flavors. You
0: answer my question. Hey. <laughs> you're taking the flavor out of it. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I mean, so if it sounds like you're a steak guy. We were talking about it already. Uh, steak so,
0: and baked potatoes.
1: <laughs> are you uh, are you a ribeye fillet? What, what's your what's your what's
0: like, your cut of meat? I, I like all, I'm a prime rib person. I you're like a prime it. rib guy. I didn't even think about that. And raw horseradish with it.
1: Oh yeah. Uh-huh. That's So, uh, Joe Redd, right, is she a, she a prime rib cooker for you? You go out around no, town we and go get, out? Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, you know, when the children were growing up, she cooked all the time. And um, now just the two of us, and she never knows what time I'm getting home at nights. So we eat out just about. If I'm in town, we eat out at lunch. Mm hmm. And, you know, it's bad when you go in restaurants now and they bring you teeth to you and everything before you sit down. You know, you've been there too much. They,
1: yeah, well, I mean, you're here in Lawrenceburg, so I'm sure everybody probably knows you by name. That's yeah. for sure, right? Well,
0: even in Lexington, every place, too. Uh, mm-hmm. We go to Lexington a lot because they got a lot more restaurants than we have here in Lawrenceburg.
1: Absolutely. And so let's, let's kind of talk about, you know, your time here at the distillery. Now, you spend a lot of time down at the gift shop. Shaking some hands, signing bottles and stuff and, like that. I
0: try to get down at least once today, but I'm in the stillery most all the time. Uh, I try to get to the visitor center at least once today. Mm-hmm. Once today, usually about this time in the afternoon, because they get off. Uh, uh, the regular workers gets off at three mm-hmm. thirty, so I usually go down there late in the afternoons and sit around. I like. Is that the t- be- You think
1: it's the best part of your day, or do you just like to have a healthy balance of getting in front of people? Well, and- I
0: like. I want to hear what the people has to say. You know, I want to listen, see what they have to say and everything.
1: Mm-hmm. And plus, you've got your, your scooter, your own personalized scooter
0: down there. Right. They had to. My knee's bad. I can't get around in these fields anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he goes in these fields, and all. I ride it down here. Right. Uh-huh. Really? Okay, so it's an off-road kind yes. of guy. Yes. It mm. run 40 miles an hour on the road.
1: Oh, well, you could just take it through the McDonald's parking <laughs> lot if you're getting hungry, too.
0: <laughs> right. It's, it, it's not licensed, but you can license it for the road. It's got turn signals and everything on it. <laughs> they bought that special for me. I didn't even know they was getting it. Uh, one day they said, we need you down to visitor Center. Well, what it was, I thought somebody that I wanted bottle huh. I walked in, and they come pushing that out. I said, here, this is what you're going to ride around here. Now on.
1: <laughs> but you actually came up here. We're recording outside on this hill, and you actually came up here in your car. You, yeah. drove, you actually drove up here on that yes.
0: one. Uh, now, if it had been... Uh, first part of the week, I could—well, they teased me about this. You know what I drive most of the time?
1: What do you drive most of the time?
0: A 1998 Ford pickup truck, four, mm-hmm. uh, four-wheel drive. Yeah. I feel that's what I—and uh, my wife, I got that to her for Christmas, and she never has drove it much. So uh, it's been sitting in the garage for three weeks, so I thought I better get out and drive it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, the battery dies, right?
0: Well, it's— uh, it's only got four thousand miles on it.
1: Yeah, you're not driving a whole lot, then.
0: Well, two thousand of it. We go to Destin, Florida, every year for vacation. The Fourth of July week, mm-hmm. we drove it down our and back, so two thousand of it.
1: <laughs> well, see now, everybody that lives out in the uh, the Destin region, they know where to catch you when you're it right. when it comes time to uh for family vacations yes. and stuff like that. Yes. So the other thing that uh you know, I kind of want to talk about, Gina, just kind of kind of wrap it up with. Some more bourbon talk is over the years. You know, you've had your hands in a lot of the releases that have come out and stuff like that. You've handed a lot over to Eddie uh, as well, and then you've everybody's everybody's really banging on Bruce to to really move here now. Uh We've we've we've, I've been I've been sensing that a lot recently. You know, where do you kind of see the the lineage going? I mean, you excited to have to have Bruce come into here, and do you think he's going to do a good job? Like, what do you think that's going to be like? (laughs)
0: Well, like Eddie said, if, he, if Eddie says if I don't do it, something happens to me, something happens to me and Bruce, I'll haunt them the rest of my their life. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the thing uh, I enjoy so much about the bourbon business. All of us are close friends here in Kentucky. If one of them gets in trouble, others do anything they can to help them out. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we're talking about Booker Knoll, Elmer Lee and Parker Beam, we all grew up together Fred Knoll and, and Eddie grew up together. Now, Parker's son, Craig beam they, they're about all the same age. They grew up together. But Craig had to give it up. Uh, you know, Parker, a close friend of mine, he had LS disease. didn't get it to his was in his 70s. and He got to the point where he still could talk all right, mm-hmm. but he couldn't do anything. They have big trucking companies and cattle farms. So Craig had to give it up and stay in uh, taking care of the farms and all. Now you got... Uh, Bruce and Fred's son, Freddie, little Freddie, uh, together now. So, still that tradition is going on. In the
1: yeah, I mean, you, you do see this this family lineage that's happening across um, pretty much pretty much all of them, right? I mean, yes. there's there's something that that yeah. there is to be said about that. Um, a little bit different on the, the the Heaven Hill side, right? Like the Shapiras, the Shapires are more more business focused rather right. than distilling focused. But they're
0: the only family-owned distillery left. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. All the rest of us are owned the foreign countries or stock.
1: hmm So, at one point, would you would you have rather had the opportunity to, like, buy back wild turkey and put it under the Russell name?
0: Or? No, we never did own it.
1: Yeah. Um, well, not buy it back. I'm just saying, like, if the opportunity presented itself or it was just something that uh, probably would never would have happened to anyway. Never would have happened, no. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's very costly. Yes, yes. Very costly. And see, most things... If you don't turn your inventory over in three or four months, you're not going to be in business very long. Mm-hmm. See here, we're not thinking about even turning the inventory over to seven to eight to 10 to 12 years from now. Mm-hmm. So we've got a lot of money tied up, especially in the state of Kentucky. We pay a tax on each barrel since sets your in ages. Yes. to the state of Kentucky.
1: Now, you would also mentioned 12 years, but from what I understand and what I remember is that you're you're more of a— like a seven to eight-year-old bourbon Ten, kind of guy. Yeah,
0: it's a seven to 12 is what I think. Seven to 12? Yeah, now we do an older lemon edition every once in a while. Mm-hmm. We put out a 14-year-old, a 15 to 17. The decades that we just finished that he put out, it's got 10 to 20-year-old bourbons. But it's just a few barrels. Mm-hmm. And we... We can, our regular bottling, one-on-one, 1,400 barrels to a batch, bottling in a small batch. There's no such term as a small batch.
1: No, you can, it doesn't really matter. You can call no, it whatever you
0: want. Ours is about 100 to 150 barrels. And we're tasting it all the time. We find something we think's aged a little extra special. We'll set them aside and keep tasting them. And if it starts getting that woody, oaky taste, if you like a lot of wood and oaky taste, you like an older bourbon. But I don't like it. And it starts getting that, we can move them down at the bottom of our house and slow that aging down. We can't move 700,000 barrels. That's what we've no. got in inventory right now.
1: So, I guess let's let's talk about that with Woody and Oaky bourbon because there is kind of a, a shift in the way that consumers are looking at buying bourbon when it comes to like a, a whiskey geek market, right? Uh-huh. When people are coming out with crazy age dated 23, 27 yeah. year old. Bourbons, and they do. They have got this like heavy, oaky, tanning, tanicky kind of taste or flavor to it. Uh, However, people like you are are saying that's that's probably not the way you should be drinking. My personal taste. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's your taste. You drink whatever you like, but that's not my taste.
1: So why is it that you think that a I would say a, a new whiskey geek or new whiskey consumer gets totally? enthralled with this large number on the package rather than the taste in itself well, a lot
0: of people think the older it is the better it is mm-hmm. now let's go back to scotch which i know a lot about that too see they're using barrels has been used two or three times i think it has to be 15 16 years old to really get some good taste in it mm-hmm. because they're using barrels that we've already used and the one thing about it when they start using your barrels they want to keep using them because uh, in eight years, we lose about a third out of a barrel. It soaks into the wood. And they're getting some flavor out of that barrel. So if they used our barrels one year, Beams or Makers or uh, Buffalo Trace, any of them, it's going to change the taste of their product. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing. And it's like food and all. I want it to taste the same every time. I don't. I don't want something. If I eat food, taste this way tonight— Next week, it tastes a different way. I don't know whether I want it anymore or not.
1: Well, there's a lot of variations you can do to mac and cheese <laughs> anymore. Yeah. No,
0: right? <laughs> and then, you know, that's a funny thing. Uh, mac and cheese now is all over the world. It used to be. You didn't see much of it, but anywhere you go in the world now, it's mac and cheese. And they got it all. There's so many different ways they fix it now and cook it to. Well,
1: do, you have, do you have a favorite mac and cheese recipe? We could just turn this into mac and cheese pursuit because <laughs> I think there's there's not a lot of people that don't like mac and cheese out right.
0: there.
1: Right? Joe, right to make a good mac and cheese?
0: We don't eat much of it.
1: No, no mac and cheese for no. you all much anymore? No,
0: my parents put tomatoes in it. Really? Uh, That's a new one. Yeah, they, they their mac and cheese when I was growing up had tomatoes in it.
1: See, I've, I don't think I've ever had that.
0: Well, but I'm old. I'm,
1: <laughs> I can always try it, though. I can always try uh, it. Uh, so we're going to wrap it up with uh, with one last question here. And this actually come, came from a listener. Uh, his name is Jeremy. And he said, uh, me and myself have, uh, and several people that I know love visiting the distillery. And we love to visit with Jimmy for an hour or so. He's a good, rich source of information and bourbon lore. Now, he kind of wants to ask, what's a couple things to like an advice that you would give of things or codes to live by for, for younger generations?
0: Well, to me... Do it, like I said a while ago, do it right or don't do it at all. Don't try to change. Keep consistent taste and flavoring all the time. Don't keep changing different things. I, I say he him says I'm hard-headed in ways, but I've done a lot of experimenting over the years with American honey, with uh, uh, the barrels has been aged, uh, different barrels and everything. I've done a lot of experimenting over the years, but. I, I stay strictly the old tradition, doing it the right way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's in the bourbon side, but just in in life in general. In life in general, what 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 do you have some good some good little tidbits that you can hand down to young generations of, whether it's uh, don't work too hard, maybe it's uh, just enjoy what you love, whatever it is. Enjoy
0: what you love. Don't try to be somebody you're not. Mm-hmm. That's what you know. I don't. I hope you see. I'm not a put on. Uh, plain as I can be uh, I just That's something I, People try to put on A big spill And I'm uh, Not in favor of that
1: <laughs> Deep thoughts with, with plain old Jimmy Right, right. Here. <laughs> So let's go ahead And we'll wrap it up Right there So make sure that If you get the opportunity To come to Lawrenceburg And visit Wild Turkey uh, try to figure out. We're, we're recording around three o'clock right now, four o'clock. And he said he's usually down at the visitor center then, so that's when you know it's probably a good time to go catch him.
0: Or you can ask the visitor center, and I'll be glad to come down there and talk to you.
1: There you go. You can do that as well, all right? Yes. So he'll, he'll do that for our podcast listeners. Yes, so, I will. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for hopping on the show today. It was a pleasure to talk to you and you know, capture a lot of that good information. I'm sure we all learn something new every single time, and I think we're going to have to go back and figure out who this Ezra Brooks character was.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for coming and being with us. We enjoyed Anytime you're always welcome here, anytime you want to come.
1: Abs- except your house, right?
0: Except not at home. <laughs> <laughs> That's off limits.
1: We're a family. It's okay. I, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. But you'd
0: be surprised. Uh, I'm not good on these computers. No. I never. People tell me, I saw you were home on uh, tele, on the internet and all. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Well, they know where you live. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the scary thing about it. You gotta, <laughs> gotta hide your address.
0: <laughs> no, I'm in the phone. My name's in the phone book here and everything.
1: Oh well, there you go. You can you can you can find him in the the local Lawrence County phone book. Oh, and, right. <laughs> so with that, I want to say, Jimmy, thank you again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you. Uh, that's how you can find Jimmy and so how you can meet him. I'm sure we already talked about it. He'll be back down in Destin, Florida, at some point soon, and who knows, you might see him at your favorite liquor store across the country <laughs> signing bottles.
0: Uh, Thank you, sir. Appreciate you coming in with me. Say you're always welcome here anytime you want to come.
1: I appreciate it. And make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you do like what you hear, you want to see more interviews with legends like Jimmy, uh, make sure you support us. Patreon.com P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bourbon Pursuit. That's how we're able to keep buying new equipment, putting miles on the car and making these good interviews happen. So with that, I want to say thank you again and we'll see everybody next week. Thank you. Cheers.